Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Avalon Chief Executive Laura Kennedy, Vice Studios US Chief Danny Gabai and Keshet Studios President Peter Trogo about how their development processes and priorities are shifting amid the rapidly changing US TV landscape as part of C21's Content LA On Demand. C21's Content LA On Demand virtual conference got underway last week with a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews exploring how the US television business is evolving in a period of unprecedented change. From the shift to streaming, the challenges of keeping production going during the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement and a move towards more international focused content, these discussions tackle the gamut of issues and opportunities confronting Hollywood right now and the status of US programming on the global stage. Avalon Chief Executive Laura Kennedy, Vice Studios US Chief Danny Gabai and Keshet Studios President Peter Trogo spoke to Adam Benzine about how their development processes and priorities are adapting to the latest dynamics shaping the US TV landscape and the opportunities opening up for international partnerships. We have three amazing speakers with us today. I'm going to introduce them quickly and talk a little bit about some of the projects that they've been working on. And then we're going to have a discussion about the changing development process and the lay of the land at the moment. First off, Laura Kennedy. She is the CEO for Avalon. Hi, Laura. Good to be here. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Um, next to her is uh, Danny Gabay. He's the head of Vice Studios US. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And to the right of uh, Danny is Peter Traugott. He's the president of Cachette Studios. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me. Now, it's been a crazy 12 months. Seems like quite a simple thing to say, but it has been. COVID has disrupted everything. There was a brief period, I remember, this time last year or perhaps a little bit earlier when it seemed like everything just completely shut down for a, for a hot minute whilst people were trying to work out what the hell was going on. Development has resumed. Production in various territories has resumed to different levels of comfort, depending on COVID safety protocols and so on and so forth. What I'm interested to get from you guys is, is a sense of how the development process is for you now with these big companies that you each work with. So I'm going to start perhaps with Laura and Avalon. You've had um, some fantastic titles recently, some big co-productions. Uh, Breeders is one of your shows. That's with um, Sky in the UK and FX in the US. Uh, Starstruck as well is a BBC3 HBO Max co-production. So tell us, I mean, both both co-productions there, is that the primary model that you're looking at at the moment? Um, well, it's certainly more common. Our slate now consists of many more co-pros and or sales to um, global buyers than was once the case. So it is definitely happening more often. Uh, we're really excited about both Breeders and its second season and Starstruck, which just launched in the UK and will launch here next month. So definitely seeing more of it, but we continue to look at each individual project and consider whether we should be taking it out to one market and licensing rights to the rest of the world afterwards or setting it up as co-pros from the outset. Um, but it's a, it's a bigger part of our slate today, given the trajectory in the market, for sure. Yes. And Starstruck, is that your first time your first production working with HBO Max? It is, yeah. I mean, yeah. we've obviously got a long-standing relationship with the team over there with Lossie tonight with John Oliver and it's a eighth season. 
Um, now they've kind of semi-merging the HBO and the HBO Max brands. But yeah, it is our first co-pro launching with uh, with HBO Max. Excellent. Well, we'll dive into that a little bit more in a second. I'm, I'm very keen to, to have a discussion about how things are working out with these companies now that have been linear for a long time and now also have streaming platforms in addition. HBO, perhaps not the best example because they had an on-demand offering before, but certainly with the likes of Peacock and various other companies launching streaming platforms. Definitely interesting to get into that. Danny, tell me how things are with Vice Studios US. Things have been great. I mean, I would say well, it's already been kind of a wild year since we kicked off. We won the Grand Jury Prize for International Documentary at the Sundance Film Festival for a great Danish documentary called Flea. That was actually an animated documentary, and that's going to distribute theatrically later this year through Participant and uh, Neon. We announced that we are doing a 30 for 30 miniseries with ESPN on the history of American Gladiators with a fantastic filmmaker named Ben Berman, who directed The Amazing Jonathan for Hulu. We announced our first tentpole uh, docuseries in India, which we're doing with Netflix, which is called Indian Predator, and is kind of taking what we've done in the premium docu- documentary space, things like you know Fire, uh, Jim and Andy, things that are kind of at that larger level and taking that skill set and that kind of storytelling into the India market. All sorts of other crazy things. We have a six-part docuseries called Pride, which is premiering on FX uh, later this month, So, which is about the history of LGBTQ culture over the last uh, 60 years or so. Each, each one directed by a phenomenal auteur LGBTQ filmmaker, each one done in their own auteur style. So all sorts of crazy stuff. Great. I have some specific questions about, I know you have various offices all over the place and we were talking about that no. before, but first I'm just going to bring Peter in. Peter Traugott with uh, Kachette Studios. Hi, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. How are you all doing? Um, it's great to have you here. You've got The Baker and the Beauty with Netflix, When Heroes Fly is with Apple TV+. Plus. They're a relatively new player still. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got projects with UTV. You've got uh, Dark Horse a pilot with ABC, lots of stuff happening with you guys. Uh, yeah, we also have a, a series that we're in production on now in Australia for NBC called La Brea, uh, which we're really excited about. It was it started as a pilot for NBC pre-quarantine, and then we were halfway, I shouldn't say halfway, about a third of the way through production when we had to shut down. And it was a very big undertaking. It's a very high concept show and very expensive. And ultimately, while we were sort of waiting to see what would happen, NBC ordered subsequent scripts. And based on the scripts, they decided to go straight to series. So that's uh, something that just went, just underway now. This is the second week of production. Yes. I mean, I'm really interested to get a sense, the conversations that you're having at the moment and as you're developing stuff. I know it's different from American network to American network, but broadly, are they interested in things that have international appeal that are in the co-production vein? Or are they looking for things that are actually quite US-centric? If you're at, uh, So sort of my experience as of late has been sort of twofold. One is um, with the the global buyer, even with the global buyers, the streaming platforms, they are either looking for things that first and foremost broadly appeal to English-speaking audience, America and UK and other English-speaking audiences, or that are very, very localized. We went out with a project recently that we were very passionate about um, that was set in South Africa and sort of the feedback, the creative feedback was was great, but the sort of feedback from a programming standpoint was it's, it's not a show that really appeals to the South African audience, nor is it was it deemed sort of a big enough idea to appeal to the English language speaking audience for for example you know America or United States I should say and so that was a bit disheartening because we thought it had that sort of global appeal right and and sort of through that process the the feedback has sort of reiterated that great if you have a local language program that can garner that audience for the streaming platforms in particular um, otherwise big big ideas big big scale shows for uh, for the for the English speaking audience right so ultra ultra specific then if it's going to be something territory focused yeah 
at least in our experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think some of the, you, you know, Apple, I mean, we can go through the buyers if, if it's uh, of interest, certainly with Netflix and Amazon and some of the other global platforms. Apple, I think still is, as, as they come online, so to speak, they are still open and looking at things. Uh, this, this show you mentioned we're doing called Echo 3, which mm-hmm. is primarily takes place here in the States and in Colombia. So it's, I would say, 70% in English, but 30% in Spanish. And that was appealing to Apple because they're really targeting the Latin American audience right now um, as they come online. But otherwise, I would assume they will, as they evolve, they will also then start to become more localized as well. Yes. Um, Laura, has that been your experience as well? Kind of conversations that you're having with American networks? Well, like you said, I think it varies network by network um, quite a bit. And some of what you said, Peter, I think resonates his similar things. But it, I, for the most part, I feel like a lot of the platforms still figuring it out. So yeah. um, there's a bit of a journey around like what actually will resonate. We know that they want every like everyone great stories that will resonate with audiences in English speaking territories and globally and what that is you know is still um, I think a bit of a moving target um, I do think there is more willingness to commission series that are international whatever in the you know I use that word loosely in the broader sense than there has been historically so I do you know that the era of American TV where buyers would never have considered a show with multiple languages and subtitles or thick accents or you know that has loosened up a lot and opened up opportunities for you know more international storytelling more storytelling in general Uh, but what the specifics are you know I think is still a bit of a moving target yeah so how has that impacted your development process internally has it changed the way that the team has worked well for us you know we we're a really fun size in that we've got expertise and and full-scale teams in both the U.S. and the U.K. but we're still small enough as an overall company that we can collaborate across markets so it hasn't hasn't really uh, radically changed in that our development efforts were and have been global across U.S. and U.K. offices for some time but it's more a Effective now for two reasons. One, this, you know, one of the few silver linings of the pandemic experience in this Zoom life is getting those global teams together has been much, much easier. Pitching across different markets, much, much easier. Everyone's at home, everyone's doing this. So it's been more effective, that collaboration and the demands, I think, like we're talking about, is, is going up. So our process hasn't changed in its intention, but I do think we've gotten better at it over the course of the past year and a half. Yes. And has there been a change in terms of pitching to networks via Zoom rather than going and meeting with them in their offices? All of our pitches have been virtual over the past year and a half. We haven't done a single in-person pitch. So uh, yeah, that's totally different. And I don't love it. I'm not sure many people (laughs) do look forward to returning to that part will be much better in person. Yes, absolutely. Well, Danny, I know that you were saying to me when we spoke before that one of the things that's come out of this for Vice is you have offices all over the world. You now have a get together where your counterpart at Vice India and Vice in London and a whole bunch of different territories, Berlin, all over the place, get together now regularly and have these meetings. Yeah, well, it's, so it's all been very interesting for us because the US studio portion of Vice is about, you know, nine, almost pushing 10 years old at this point. And for a long time, it was the only studio division at Vice. We didn't really have corollary international studios, but the US studio kind of from the kickoff and from the get-go was always doing very globally targeted projects. And um, I was even just looking at kind of an old run through of our credits and just going back to 2012, 2013, we made primarily scripted feature films, but in Somali, Farsi, French, Swedish, Belarusian, German, Danish, 
there was always a very global aspect to it. And about two years ago, um, we brought in a global president, Kate Ward, who came from Refinery29 and Endemol Shine before that, where she was doing kind of the international side of that business. And she really took the model of what we were doing with the US studio and set up fully functional studios in India to look after our APEC business, the UK and Latin America, Mexico City specifically to look after all of Latin America and really build specifically curated, creatively driven teams that could, you know, take what we had been doing well in the US and figure out how to do that with, especially with streamer partners that were looking to expand in that more global, local way, like everyone was talking about it because Vice is known as a very global company and, you know, the other parts of the company, the news divisions, the editorial divisions, the even the branded content divisions had been established, you know, in 34 different countries for almost, you know, 20 something years. The feeling was it would be very natural and easy to expand that studio business in a very focused and concentrated way in a lot of those other territories. And this all timed out well because it took some time to set up those kind of key international hubs, but we really got those up and running, I would say, around February of 2020. And then lockdown kicked in. We all got very used to doing Zoom conferences very, very quickly. And because of that, it just dovetailed very well into be, into doing these global creative meetings where we could get all of the creative heads and all of the production people from these kind of four key territories together. And, you know, our LADAM team could talk about the temple documentaries that they were working on for Netflix, like 1994, the three deaths of Maurice Escovido uh, for Netflix, or the India team could talk about the Indian Predator or the series that they were developing for Amazon because they're doing a few of them over there. We could talk about the kind of temple things that we were doing and we could actually start trading ideas back and forth and we could say, hey, look, the India team is working on this thing. It clearly feels very specific for the India market, though it's, you know, they may be doing something with a Netflix or an Amazon where it's primarily targeted to the local market, but with an idea that somebody in another territory may find that content. And we could say, okay, this isn't going to directly translate, but it's interesting that you're doing this particular kind of character in this space. We hadn't done anything like that in the US or the UK teams may say, hey, we have a corollary idea that we could do over here. And it would just create a lot of great idea flow, information flow, things like that. And then the other key thing, which I think works specifically well for us is We've always been very auteur filmmaker driven, no matter what we're doing. And, you know, I think probably that comes from the fact that the studio started primarily focused on scripted feature films. And a lot of that, especially at the price point we were doing, was very driven by auteur filmmakers. And we were able to really kind of apply that to the scripted television series that we've been developing and setting up. So really going after, you know, oftentimes very, very global international auteur filmmakers to be the EPs of the driving force or the, probably not the showrunners, but the very least the creators of a lot of our scripted television ideas or being able to go with international filmmakers for a lot of our temple documentary ideas, things like that. You know, the one other key thing I would just say, which I think, you know, it may be very specific to us, but, you know, we always focus primarily on scripted content with probably one or two documentary projects each year that those, the doc projects always performed particularly well for us, whether it was Fire or Jim and Andy or, you know, even this documentary flea that we had at Sundance. But what's been very interesting for us in COVID is, when it felt like a lot of our scripted stuff was temporarily frozen and, you know, especially a lot of our series development, 
which felt like it was really charging ahead, kind of had a pin put in it. We, we really just quadrupled down on documentary projects. And um, I, I would say at least the pipeline for, you know, everything we've been making in 2020, probably running through the end of this year is now 75% documentary, docuseries, temple docs, things like that, just because it was much more producible for us in COVID. And can I just uh, clarify, as, as Vice Studios US, are you just focused on pitching stuff to US networks? Or do you also try and get ideas away? I'm, I think we, A, we give ideas away. So we have we have plenty of ideas that we've originally cooked up and our UK team has ended up selling that to a UK commissioner. You know, we've had seeds of ideas that our India team has sold. You know, I think because we've been around for nine years at this point and a lot of the stuff we've done has been very internationally focused. You know, we, from the get-go, we've always been a little bit more focused on selling to the streamers, selling to international buyers. You know, almost everything we did in the first couple of years was exclusively with Netflix and HBO. And then we started doing a lot of stuff with Amazon. And I, I think it's just the kind of stuff we're doing tends to fit that model very well. Um, as opposed to maybe more traditional cablers and whatnot. Yes, I'm going to bring in Peter. I'm going to bring Peter back into the conversation. Uh, Keshet is working with companies all over the world, broadcasters all over the world. Firstly, how much of a priority is the US market versus the rest of the world for Keshet now, in terms of how much of a focus you're putting on there? And then secondly, it would be great if you could talk a little bit about, about that market in the US now, in terms of how you approach Peacock, HBO Max, Netflix, the sure. stream versus ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the US market is still the, the the sort of priority for Ke- so Keshet is, as as you know is an Israeli company first and foremost and, and and sort of on a much smaller scale sounds similarly set up to to Vice meaning we have a we have offices here in Los Angeles that focus on the US market production and development also in the UK and also in Germany but the sort of the impetus for the for the business started in Israel rather, rather than like the Vice obviously started in the US and broadened out and the idea was and still continues to be that sort of from a business perspective the US is still the biggest market and outside Side of the U.S., the global market, as at least defined by the streamers, you know, streamers now have offices almost everywhere. But for those bigger, bigger projects, the the headquarters, so to speak, and the people at the highest levels are still in Los Angeles. So when you say U.S. market, I kind of draw the distinction between something that's destined just to air in the U.S. Uh, or at least set set up in the U.S., whether it's for a, a broadcast network or an HBO, versus something that we're targeting the streamers for. So with that said, the, the way we've been looking at it, and, and particularly in the last sort of 14 months with the pipeline, as, as as Danny was alluding to, sort of being stuck, right? And people's development slates continuing to grow, but no outlet for that from a production mm-hmm. perspective. Sort of the bar seems to have gotten even higher, at least at least from my perspective, in terms of uh, projects. So the idea for us in terms of what we're focusing quite a bit on is, you know, like everybody else to some degree is packaging. I mean, first and foremost, good ideas with good, with good writers, hopefully, and, and great characters and great stories. We tend to be not exclusively, but primarily IP driven. That was sort of the, again, the impetus for the business here some 15 years ago. But to sort of to to reach that or o- overcome that bar now that that at least in the, in the short term has been set very high, trying to put together some some bigger packages to take out to the market. And again, not exclusively, but that's sort of how we've been approaching it and refocusing our business. We we tended to do a lot of and sort of my background and uh, how I came up with sort of like all ground up development, a good idea with a good writer, and then in a way you go. And that's still a lot of how I look at things, but mm-hmm. also then trying to you know ensure that we have success by putting some pieces around. That seem to be even more important in the marketplace today. What, when you say packaging, what are those key elements for you? 
value that you're taking to market with a, you know, if you've, you've got a project in development, you decide now's the right time to take it to Netflix. What what do you have attached? Is it the showrunner, the writer, and maybe a piece of acting talent? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it depends on the project and the sort of auspices behind the project. We have a project we're about to go out with, with a very A-plus uh, creator showrunner who's been around forever and won a bunch of Emmys and is very sought after. Uh, and he, it's a spec script and people are very happy with the script. But even with this uh, showrunner who's who's as I said is very sought after there's a bit of a hesitation because it's not based on it's, it's based on a book but it's not a big idea it's not a genre show it's a very very character driven show and so we've been working internally to try to find a piece of casting to attach that we think would be well received you know around town and if you would ask me that question 14 months ago I would have said as soon as the script's ready we'll go out with it um, and that's that's somewhat changed but you know again each each project is slightly different we're going out with something now that is based on a piece of IP that's very loud uh, genre a piece with writers and a, a showrunner and that's something we didn't we hope anyway we don't feel we need to attach a piece of talent to or, or a director for that matter so it just depends i guess on the on the on the piece yeah laura has that been your experience when in terms of the stuff that you're developing how important is pre-existing ip whether that's based on a, a you know a reboot of a show or a book that people might have heard of or a, you know characters pre-existing characters that might have been there and also it'd be great if you could talk about well as, as we loosely call it packaging the different elements that you tend to attach before taking something to a network yeah i mean i think uh well to answer the second question first i agree with peter that the you know there's so much competition out there that you really need to have packaged uh the projects you're taking to market at least that's that's been our experience and then to answer your question on is how important is underlying ip uh it's certainly valuable the risk in tv has gone up in that just the cost to produce a show it's certainly inflated over time so the overall risk profile of TV is higher than it once was and having some underlying IP and success story to look to, um, I think is is helpful when you're trying to get a series pickup that people like to mitigate risk and like to know that there's already audience buy-in and brand awareness. So those are all helpful. Um, I do I do think that that's balanced with a desire to commission, you know, an increasing desire, not, not enough, I'd like to see more, but an increasing desire to commission new voices, new talent. So there's, we see both. We need one or the other, either distinctive new voice, new talent that someone's really excited to bet on. You know, that's, I think, a big part of what we're excited about. And I think the story behind Starstruck and, you know, really exceptional talent in Rose Matafeo, but there's no underlying IP. She's really, really what I think drove that series to success um, and what we're, what we're most excited about there. But underlying IP can act is, is clearly, you know, we see it and if you just look at what's on air, and I don't think Disney's done anything that, that doesn't have underlying IP as, a, as an example. Oh, I mean, gigantic, yeah. We have seen some real breakthroughs with things like Fleabag and I May Destroy You and things that are not only popular, Atlanta, as well as another example, not only popular, but have such a distinctive voice of the creator behind them. Yeah, exactly. But it, but it does seem sometimes like they're a little fewer and further between when yeah. you look at the HBO Max lineup and it's, you know, Dune is based on a book and Wonder Woman is a comic book character and Matrix is a reboot. Mortal Kombat is a video game. It does seem... We'd love to see more of that. You know, Showtime, we've got a new series launching with Showtime next month with um, created by two new artists. Really exceptional. Really seems to be very, very excited about that show. There's definitely increased demand. Love to see more of it. More buyers willing to really 
make real bets on uh, up and coming artists, new voices that are unproven and, uh, you know, need a platform, need someone to be willing to to take a risk and bet on what they can deliver. And I'm seeing, we are seeing more of that, but be awesome to see people really lean in, especially in the world of comedy. Totally agree. I'm I'm going to go to each of you with this question, but I'm interested to know, can you sort of overpackage? One of the things we know about US networks is that if they are going to give something a green light, they want to have a lot of control over it. So can it be a situation where, you know, actually, if you go to them and say, this is the showrunner, this is the director, this is the writer, and these are the two lead stars, they don't yet have a chance to attach maybe people who they want to attach to things. I, I mean, I, I, we've yet to experience that. I mean, everyone, everyone certainly likes to put their own, um, have their own influence, f- for sure. I think it will influence the steps. You know, so if you come with a fully packaged show, I, you know, you may get, let's just do script to series, pilot series, series rather than straight series order perhaps you know so give the development execs at a, at a network more opportunity to influence the creative direction but you know whether it's in the director or the rest of the cast you know there's my experience is there's usually enough opportunities for execs to influence you know the team as needed uh, i haven't seen anyone push back on a situation where we've got a fully packaged show and they don't they want us to, that's a negative. I don't know, Daniel, yeah, I, I, if you feel yeah, the same. I was going to say, we, I think just rule of thumb, we usually tend to keep our packaging elements to probably like two elements max on most things. And that gives plenty of room for the buyers to round it out with people that they like and you know, whatever positions we have gaps in. But, you know, oftentimes we'll have a showrunner and a key piece of talent or, you know, a showrunner and a filmmaker or something like that. But we, we you know, we try to leave plenty of room for our buyer to put their stamp on it. Yes. Yeah, the, I was going to just add to that. Sometimes for us, the sort of risk assessment is, is this person you're attaching going to be well-received at, with all the buyers that you're targeting for the project? And that's, there are obvious, the Julia Roberts of the world, obviously, are always going to be, everyone's going to want to be in business with, but there are some other names where it's not as as clear even. And you try to, at least for me, try to maintain that balance of, well, I really believe this actor or director is perfect for the project, but I don't know that they're going to be uh, value-added every buy, with every buyer, right? And then conversely, we'll get pitched certain attachments that are, you know, from a creative perspective, maybe we don't believe are perfectly right for the project, but we also know it's going to help sell it. So, you know, it's that balance, right? In, in addition to, to, I agree with what Laura was saying as well about getting executive buy-in, you want them to have room, but there's always opportunity for that. Yes. And I would imagine it, it probably becomes a bit more complex when it becomes a big co-production involving multiple different territories. And you have, you know, the BBC might have quite strong ideas about who they, what the direction they would like a show to go in and, you know, HP. HBO has quite strong ideas about the direction they'd like to go in. We're in the middle of one of those now, yes. Danny, I'm interested to ask just quickly, I know, I mean, especially as Vice does a lot of unscripted, mm-hmm. do you treat nonfiction in terms of development the same way as you treat fiction? Yeah, we, we do. And I think for us, it's that even though we do a lot of nonscripted, our nonscripted is primarily in the documentary space. So for us, it's still really a focus on, I, w- I would say, story and characters first and foremost. And even though there's obviously very different elements, with the documentary form and unscripted and all of that, I think for us, we really put an emphasis on the story that we're telling, the narrative, who those core characters are, how those characters arc over the course of a story. And I would say because we really moved into, at least on the studio side, documentary after we had really done a lot of stuff already in the scripted space, it, we probably took more storytelling techniques and tools and all of that from the scripted work that we had done um, and put that into documentary storytelling as opposed to you know people that may convert from the other 
other direction. Right. I mean, I'm interested from all of you as well. Do you think that the pandemic has changed audience tastes in terms of what they want? And has that had an impact in terms of the things that you're developing? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, well, doom and gloom is out and we, what, we really want to focus on feel-good programming. You have things like My Octopus Teacher breaking through on the documentary front. Has has that been your experience? Or I've gotten a lot of that feedback. And I, I would say it's interesting because a lot of the content that Vice does on the news and editorial side, which is you know very in tune with what's going on in the world, may have kind of a dark aspect to it just because there's a lot of dark right, stuff going on. And you know we've historically done a lot of our development based on stories that were running or underlying IP that is coming from the editorial side of the company or the news side of the company or whatnot. And at the same time, I've always tried to put a real emphasis in our content on being entertaining and dark is not always entertaining or at least not a, not in a way that I, I really like. So, you know, we've always tended to focus on lighter stories, oftentimes with a sense of humor that may parallel trends of darker things that are going on in the world. But, you know, I feel like when it comes to entertainment, people want to be entertained. And a lot of that means not being reminded about how screwed up the world may be at a given point or at least doing it in an absurdist way that's actually fun and entertaining to watch. So that's definitely been an interesting trend where the constant feedback we're getting from buyers is keep it light. People don't want to wallow in their own misery. We don't need another 10 projects about people being in lockdown for the past year and how that's destroyed their lives. And at the same time, we, we get these really dark stories that are being pushed on us by our news divisions and our editorial divisions. And we have to sit there and say, that's probably better in your arena, but we'll find the right one. Laura and Peter, has that been your experience as well in terms of notes broadly from broadcasters about what they want? Yeah, no, it's similar for, for sure. I think we, you know, we're all living through such a weird and sort of destabilizing time, but escapist entertainment, you know, even dark comedy. So, you know, something that ties into the world around us, but with that humor to allow us to experience some escapist element, it, it's definitely more in demand today than pre-pandemic eras. Does that change the scripts that you're looking for then? Are you trying to find those kind of lighter or more comedic things? Well, for us, com comedy is very much at the, you know, core of our business. And, you know, we Avalon was founded originally as a, as a company representing presenting comedians and comedy is very much at the core of our our slate, our overall DNA. Um, so it hasn't hasn't changed massively. And, and we've always, in fact, we've stayed really committed to that through this cycle of, you know, drama being very much at the forefront. So it hasn't changed us, but we're excited that we're more aligned with uh, with where the market is today in terms of our development efforts. And Peter? Yes, similar. I, but, but both uh, what Danny and Laura said about the, we talk a lot about entertainment and a lot about escapism because sometimes you can be edgy, right? And, and you can be dramatic but also be entertaining and escapist it doesn't have to be dark but the 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 the, the fun you know Keshet at least started as and and is, is primarily known for very not necessarily always dark but hard-hitting drama the ones from the, the things that we take from Israel certainly hard-hitting drama that are hopefully well done and and leave an audience thinking but not so easy to watch all the time and 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 those are the things that oftentimes you know we as a company are very passionate about but it's hard that that balance between finding the right home for that type of program right now versus things like the baker and the beauty that you mentioned which which we're very proud of and it's a fun escapist you know classic Notting hill type story based on a uh a keshet israeli, israeli series from keshet that is you know was out of nowhere with no kind of push from netflix was doing you know performing really really well and i think that's indicative of of, of the kind of things that people you know all us being equal are looking for right
right now. Yes. Listen, we're running out of time. So before I let you all go, I just want to get a sense from each of you on what you think the next 18 months is going to hold and for your companies, what the priority is going to be, what you see yourself focusing on, and in as much as possible, the way you think that the market might change and how you can anticipate that change. So Peter, why don't we stay with you? Looking Oh, I'd like to go last on this one. <laughs> you can go last. I'll let Laura go first then. I'm teasing. Okay, it doesn't matter. It's teasing. Go ahead, Laura. Well, I'll just say, I mean, I think the one thing I've learned over the past year and a half is I have no idea what the future holds. Like, That's literally... why I wanted you to go first. So I could, so no. I, could borrow. I was hoping you learned something from you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, you know, yeah, very much living for the moment. I'm very excited about our slate, both our production and what's on the development pipeline at Avalon. And uh, what we do know is there is more demand than ever for entertainment, uh, both consumers and buyers alike. Um, and it's an increasingly global marketplace. So finding those distinct stories to tell from anywhere in the world or, you know, locally that are just distinctive in, in some manner. And, uh, you know, uh, hope platforms will continue to invest and support artists because uh, it's very readily apparent that we need that kind of human connection and, and storytelling to uh, help navigate these, uh, you know, really, really tricky times. Do you think that the bulk of your work will be with existing networks that have existed, say, for five, 10, 15 years or will be with these new players who are coming through splashing the catch very keen to make a, an impression like HBO Max and Apple and Peacock and all of these new players who are coming through no all, all of the all of the above I mean I think you know I expect to do business with both traditional platforms and the newer the newer streamers that are coming online so I expect to be in business with, with many as everyone sort of figures out their strategy and we you know we back the talent and the project first and foremost and then find the right home for it so it'll organically develop depending on what what our slate consists of and what the needs are for each for each platform but like i said i think it is evolving and everyone's gonna all the buyers are sort of figuring out uh, where their priorities are at the moment yes and danny vice always likes to pride itself as a very forward-looking future-focused company yeah I mean, look, look, you know, we've always played very well with and got in very early with the streamers. And, you know, I, th I think their ability to find very specific audiences for what they do and potentially take things that would normally target a more specific audience and potentially seed them out to wider audiences has always worked very well for us, um, which is, I think, from both our, our series work and even when it, you get into, you know, feature films that we've done, we've oftentimes been streamer first. And we are doing a lot of stuff in the pipe and development um, in various levels of production with a lot of the new players that are rolling out there. So some of that stuff's not announced, but we'll be able to let people know more about it as, as the year goes on. I think one, A, one of the biggest changes I've seen, which has really started during COVID and I'm seeing that this evolution is that, uh, and maybe it has to do with more of the unscripted stuff we're doing. We are actually starting to do some more and more stuff with more traditional cablers, which we really hadn't done at all before right. 2020. Um, so that that's you know a lot of stuff, a lot of work with FX, um, which has been great to work with ESPN, though, obviously they have a streaming platform as part of what they're doing. And that's probably why we, we clicked well with them on that, on the particular project we're doing with them. But that's been interesting to see, you know, the other thing with us as, you know, be, beyond the work with the streamers is I'm seeing more of an evolution towards us, I think, kind of coinciding with launching these international divisions, focusing on things like getting our first international foreign language scripted series off the ground, up and running. You know, we have projects set up with various players, but really getting those things actually 
actually moving into a green light and going to pilot pickups and all of that. So I think that's probably one of the bigger evolutions we're seeing. And then the other side is, you know, a lot of these projects are in production, but seeing these larger tentpole extended documentary, documentary series that we're doing in foreign languages and foreign countries really kind of taking off in a bigger way. And I, you know, those are two newer areas of growth that I think feel very natural to the, to the company, but for our studio business are really growing much more rapidly because the buyers, especially the streamers seem to really have an interest in doing those sorts of things. Yes. And do you find that they move at the same speeds in terms of how quickly they'll commission things? I find the new, the new players for me are moving faster. And when I say new players, I'm including the, the Netflixes and HBO Maxes and Amazons of the world. And I think maybe to some extent that's because they drop everything at once. People were staying home in COVID and watching as much stuff as possible and just really going through. And, you know, where I think people were thinking, oh, there's going to be this content glut at a lot of these new buyers. There's actually, you know, really what we've seen is the appetites seem pretty limitless. So I, I'm finding the commissioning speeds at a lot of these new players to be incredibly fast. Yes. Yes. Super. And Pisa? I mean, yeah, for us, the, 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 at least for, for Keshet Studios under my, you just, you know, obviously Keshet is a, is a global company, but overseeing the, the US side of it, our primary focus is still going to be on scripted. We do, we do dramas and comedies, but mostly focusing on, on the dramas as of late, just from a business standpoint, it's, a, it's, it seems to be a better business for us. And at least in the near term, I'm more sort of curious to see, and, and I guess curious is a catch all for anxious about, you know, almost every month, it feels like there's a new platform being launched and, you know, five years from now, how many, how many of these buyers will be left? Mm -hmm. Um, And I just kind of look at it from a very practical standpoint of, you know, younger people in particular looking at, well, they've, they've all, you know, cut the cord, so to speak. No one wants to pay for cable and all that stuff um, and and do things more a la carte. But if you start looking at now how expensive a la carte becomes, right? $5.99 here for one platform, $10.99 for another. And the things that you need, so to speak, in your, in your bundle to make you feel fulfilled starts to become very expensive again. So I, I agree that it's great to be in the content providing business. I don't think that's ever, that's going to change being be able to hopefully bring good stories to bear. People will always want. I just, the, the idea of how many sort of buyers we'll be talking about in five years or 10 years is, is something that we, you know, we talk a lot about and, and try to strategize about. And I'd be, you know, if I, I, if I had an, I'd be lying if I said I had a, an answer for that. Well, I would think that, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be a problem if you commission something for Joe Blog streaming platform and, you know, you get paid for it, it gets made. And then five years from now, Joe Blog streaming platform shut shop. Oh, no. Yeah. And, 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 and it's today, there's idea. obviously, you know, there's a, there's, there's a huge appetite, obviously, um, as, as we've talked about. I just, I, I watch a lot of, uh, of the Food Network. Chopped is one of my favorite shows <laughs> to, to escape with. And uh, in the last, you know, months. Not surprisingly, every episode of, of Food Network shows has that uh, icon for the Discovery Plus platform that they're launching for. I think five ninety nine. I'm starting. Okay, so pretty soon I probably won't be able to get any of those shows that are under Discovery Plus. You just until unless I now subscribe to Discovery Plus, right? And and I will do it, but. I'm just wondering how long that can last, you know, how long that can be a, a business um, and how many subscribers are going to need to sustain that business. Laura Kennedy, Danny Gabai and Peter Trogo speaking to Adam Benzine as part of C21's Content LA On Demand. Video versions of all the sessions are available on c21media.net if you're a pro subscriber and there'll be more from the event in the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 